This year, the Irish state is 100 years old. Interestingly, one of the first pieces of significant legislation to be passed by the Irish Free State was the Censorship of Film Act, Films Act 1923. The history of the Irish Film Censors Office, which spans eight decades, nine film censors, reflects a fascinating glimpse of Ireland's socio-political and cultural history since the foundation of the state and the censor's notes and judgments are now available to study in the National Archives. We send one of our film critics, who also happens to be Professor of Film Studies at Trinity College, Ruth Barton, along to the National Archives to study and share what she found out about how films were cut, banned or approved, indeed, in in the past century. It's kind of extraordinary to think that it was one of the most significant pieces uh, of sense of legislation and one of the first that the it, Irish Free State passed. It is extraordinary. I mean, it's 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 just this trip back into history and into the kind of voices of the past as well. Because you know what you've got is verbatim the film censor's reports and then also um, his letters to the Minister for Justice of the day, and so. What you get is like the first film censor. You didn't have to have any qualification, first of all, to be a film censor. You didn't really have to know anything about films. In fact, probably like mm. who did anyway? Because they hadn't seen that much. So, mm. so you get that James up, step up then, James Montgomery, whose whose work, you know, his CV was that he'd been an employee of the gas company. Now he was getting a bit on and he was getting a bit sick, so they had to find something else for him to do. So a few strings were pulled, and he he lands this job as. Ireland's first ever film censor in 1923. And so he takes as his motto for the film censor's job that there were two things that he bore in mind when viewing these obviously dirty pictures. Um, (laughs) One was the Ten Commandments and the other was Aesop's fable about a man who tried to please everybody but succeeded in pleasing nobody. Now, I have to say, his second guideline is, he was not, so right. <laughs> is not the worst guideline in the world for many, for many walks of life. But the idea that there was absolutely no qualification there. And, you know, I thought, well, if I was playing devil's advocate slightly here, would I say, well, the formation of a new state, you're going to want to be careful about propaganda films coming from elsewhere, films with political content. Needless uh, to say, no. politics didn't <laughs> enter into it. No, that was not what they were worried about. And mm. curiously, they weren't even particularly worried about violence. It was sex they worried about. and Shock horror. I know, immoral pictures. And what, you know, it was kind of fascinating about reading through these is what he, he had this idea that he was protecting basically the, the uneducated people of Ireland from the, the modernity and the horrors of Hollywood that was, that was coming through. And so he, you keep, you know, time after time you read him saying, well, basically other people could see this film somewhere else in the world, but the people of Ireland will not want to see this film and the exhibitors of Ireland will not show this film, so I'm banning it. Tomorrow's uh, Love 1925. Tom- I sp- the word love is there, so that's Well, that's, a, that's already dirty, right? So, you know, I, I wish I could do the accent. Like, you can imagine that old Dublin mm. accent that nobody actually has any longer. But he, here, here he is. The picture opens with an embarrassingly intimate glimpse of a young married pair in a bridal chamber. After a year, there is a compromising situation in which the wife finds the husband in a dressing gown in the vamp's apartment. Divorce follows, and then a silly and impossible sequel in which the remarriage of the divorced man was prevented and his reconciliation with the divorced wife was effected in a bathroom where she is draped in a towel. In rejecting the film, I am saving the public from one of the most foolish pictures I have seen. 
Well, it isn't very kind of him now to make his mind yeah, up. Yeah, and he has, like, he has an idea to you about quality that's going through <laughs> this as well. Somehow, you know, because they've got sex in them and they're coming from Hollywood, they're also just bad films. Yeah. And so you know, he's saving the public. And, and he was quite proud or, uh, of the fact that he had no qualification or at least it didn't bother him that he had no knowledge or qualification in and around film. No, it didn't bother him at all. And, and I mean, he, by the time, well, he must have had an awful lot of knowledge about mm. film by the time he'd finished because you've got to picture this man sitting on his own in this office, you know, in, in a building, watching one film after another. And he, you know, there were a lot of films. I mean, films were coming in in their thousands. Mm. Um, and so he was just watching one film. So he knew a lot by the time he'd finished. But no, he knew nothing about films. And he was OK. He, his mind wasn't... He, uh, his solid. conscience was, was absolutely clear because he, mm. had, he had morality and righteousness and the Catholic Church, of course, on his side. And Aesop's fable and as Aesop's well fable, to, yeah. to, to yeah. back him up. Yeah. Let us move on uh, a little bit through the decades. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Gone with the Wind, the, the big novel, obviously the best-selling novel of Margaret Mitchell, Vivian Leigh, as Scarlett O'Hara, Clark Gable as Rhett Butler. Lots, lots was of a, detail missing here. There was a lot to here. exercise in there because I mean, one of the things that he also found, you know, sort of dirty was childbirth. Um, uh, I know, and here's a country where women were having children, you know, more children mm. than they could possibly cope with. And so people were fairly familiar with childbirth. But anyway, he protected the Irish public from childbirth because in, in one scene, you know, Melanie gives birth. So that's cut, snip. Um, and then, you know, he was... he. Uh, he, not- he noted um, passionate and prolonged kisses between um, Rhett and Scarlet. So those had to go cut um, because he knew that this was a prelude to sex. And so, you know, yeah. the public would get that one too. Um, and then again, if you, you know, remember later on, Scarlet, um, she comes back, she's pregnant. And I have the clip. I have that okay, clip, let's, actually. Let's so let, let's have a listen yeah, yeah, to the yeah. clip. This is uh, from Gone with the Wind. So this is to, a, a, further on. She's married to, to Rhett at this stage. Things yes. aren't going too well. <laughs> it, has, it has to be said. And um, it, he's unhappy. she's unhappy that he's going away again. What the I believe? Now, Miss you've come back. And only to bring Bonnie. Apparently any mother, even a bad one, is better for a child than none. You mean you're going away again? What perception, Mrs. Butler? Right away. In fact, I left my bags at the station. Oh. You're looking pale. Is there a shortage of room? Or can this wanders mean you've been missing me? If I'm pale, it's your fault. Not because I've been missing you, but because... Pray continue, Mrs. Butler. It's because I'm going to have a baby. And who's the happy father? You know it's yours. I don't want it any more than you do. No woman would want the child of a cat like you. I wish it were I wish it were anybody's child but yours. Well, cheer up. Maybe you'll have an accident. <laughs> Uh, 
Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, Clark Gable as Rhett Butler in a scene there from Gone with the Wind. So that, that scene was gone as That's well. Gone. We're, we're talking about film censorship tonight with Ruth Barton, who's mm. been going through the, the archives on this particular matter. That scene was gone uh, as well. I presume there was nothing got to do with the nasty treatment of, of his oh, wife no, there by Rhett Butler. That it, was fine. It, it was the fact that she that she's throwing herself down the, the mm. stairs and, and, and that she wants an abortion. I mean, well, she wants to lose the child, and so which she does by throwing herself down the stairs, and that was unacceptable as well. And, the, you know, you've got to put yourself as kind of the other side of this and imagine sitting in, in the cinema, seeing this hugely anticipated film with all its Irish, you know, mm. connections as well from blockbuster book, this blockbuster film, massive amount of anticipation. What what can you have seen? And, yeah, and, so I, and I think many people, I mean, people knew. It wasn't like they didn't know the films were censored. So they, they spent time in the cinema putting together. And so you could just imagine actually what they imagined may well have been worse than what was cut at the end of the day. Uh, the, the other side of things here is, um, I'm thinking of film noir. Montgomery went, uh, uh, he got his nice retirement plan and off he went and he was replaced in 1940 by Dr. Richard Hayes. Um, similar type of oh, decision-making yeah. process here? Nothing really changes in this. Um, uh, Hayes is a bit more concise in the way that he dismisses a film. Mm. Whereas Montgomery, Montgomery is quite a writer, actually, and he gives quite sort of florid accounts of the films that, that he's um, banning or cutting. Uh, Hayes is more more concise. So here we have The Big Sleep, and here's Hayes on The Big Sleep. This is a thoroughly immoral film in the widest sense of the word. Blackmail and murders are mere incidents in it. The entire atmosphere is sordid, and there are many suggestive situations and not a little double-meaning dialogue altogether an unsavoury picture for which a certificate cannot be granted. Let's listen to the... I mean, this is a wonderful scene. Oh, and, the, the, you know... The, and, and of course, double entendre is the key to this. Yeah, exactly. This and it's it, the key to many film noir scenes mm, where, the, mm. you know, you can you can feel the raised eyebrow of Humphrey Bogart in this case, but of whoever the, the, the characters might be. This is uh, Philip Marlowe, played by Humphrey Bogart, taking refuge in a bookshop where the bookseller is played by Dorothy Malone. Now, this scene... Be careful, children. It's suggestive. Going to wait for him to come out? Yeah. Mm, it'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. I got my car. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I got a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well... Looks like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. Tell me more about this business. Oh, there isn't much to tell. I. What's the matter? I'm just wondering if you have to. Uh... Oh, not necessarily. Little things like that make enough. There you go. What hello. does hello mean? <laughs> is what I'm asking myself. That's a scene from The Big Sleep. One again. So this was cut, Ruth Barton, from the version of the film that was seen here in Ireland. Yes, it was. And so again, I mean, if you and think what would happen? You know, would you would you see? I mean, something? actually, that film was banned. So they oh, didn't, the film so, entire, so, in the, the its film entirety was banned. That one. So yeah. so so you know, going back. 
um, to Gone with the Wind, say, they, you could see it, but cut. This was just straightforward band. You couldn't see it at all. I know, just couldn't see it. And and yet, the, I mean, the fun is obviously in this the, the suggestiveness, which could also be quite innocent. You could say that the suggestion is in the mind of the beholder rather than anywhere else. Yeah, and if you're protecting, like, I mean, there's this sort of idea that people can't think for themselves. Yeah. So, so if people can't think for themselves, they're not going to get it anyway, you know. Uh, 19, the mid 20th century then we have Liam O'Hora comes in in 1956 as as censor um, are we getting anywhere near change at this point I mean censorship has been such a, 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 a whole idea in and around Irish literature at this point as well obviously yeah. are we getting any, anywhere more towards anything more liberal no it's really extraordinary I mean it, you think of the 1950s as being you know a, a period of where Ireland is kind of very gradually moving towards mm. modernity but, but I think that it was really still quite a re- a repressive period in Irish society and certainly in terms of Irish film censorship, really nothing changes. And there are just some such bizarre um, bannings. I mean, here is, you know, again, Banned, The Apartment, Billy Wilder's classic of 1960. This is one of the great films of all time. And um, and, it's, and the basic setup here is the problem of what's going on in the, the apartment, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, sex. Um, and, and we can't, we just can't. And again, it's, there's no worry about violence. It's always about, you know, immorality. And, and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't in on his own because there was an appeals board as well. But the state had set up the, the appeals board to represent almost an, equally, an equal sort of set of moral, of judgments. Was it, was it O'Hara that said, you know, he didn't like the fact, because it is very personalised when you have a film censor. A, a board is a much fairer way of doing it because you yeah. might also have a, a breadth of opinion across the board. Yeah, it slightly depends who's on the board, though, because, I mean, they had, you know, they had representatives of the church, they had representatives of sort of, mm. you know, they're doctors, a university lecturer, well, <laughs> university lecturer, but they weren't exactly you know, the most liberal lot in terms of who yeah. had been chosen. So by and large, they backed up the censor, but what they were really pressing for, and the censor absolutely was opposed to, was certificates. You know, you've, yeah, you've become which of course is the case now. Classification of classification, films. which is where we're at. Yeah. Which is and Ahura also had to deal with the arrival of television and RTE, and, and and he wanted the film censor to be across that as well. He did, and what you see, RTE was very clever because they sort of gave the impression that the films they were showing had been passed by the film censor. And and they hadn't been, yeah. and so there was t- this tension arose between I, the two two sets. Finally, I, I mean, it's nineteen seventy nine. We're talking about here. We're not talking about the you know the dim the, the past history, the life of Brian. Life of, of Brian. Why was this? Well, of course, there are a million. Well, reasons. I think you might think of you know, every sperm is sacred. <laughs> uh, I, I hesitate to say that on, on uh, even now, but um, yeah, I mean, it's whole attitude and and it, it's religion, it's sex. Uh, it's everything from Life of Brian. Ban yeah. it. Yeah, ban it totally. When did it finally get to our screens? Do you know that offhand? No, no, that's uh. not yet. Because, I mean, it's extraordinary that it did take so long to, to get there. Let us finish by listening to a little scene from The Life of Brian. Um, all about all about where you're going to go if you're going to be crucified. Michael Palin is a Roman officer here lining up for those who have been condemned to crucifixion. Next Crucifixion. Yes. Good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. Next. Crucifixion. Good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. Next. Crucifixion. Uh, No, freedom. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, Freedom for me. They said I hadn't done anything so I could go free and live on an island somewhere. Oh. Oh, well, that's jolly good. Well, off you go then. Now, nah, man, you're putting your leg. It's crucifixion, really. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, very good, very good. 
Well, out of the door. Yeah, out of the way, out of the door, one cross each, line on the left. Line on the left. Yes. There we go. <laughs> I think you might ask, what did the film censor ever do for us? <laughs> exactly. You, you, might, you might well ask that particular question. All right. Um, that is Ruth Barton talking to us about 100 years of film censorship in Ireland. And Ruth will be part of a panel discussion with the last film censor, John Kelleher and Trish Long, formerly of Disney. They're marking 100 years of film censorship in Ireland. And this is all hosted by the National Archive and the Irish Film Classification Office, as it is now called. That's at the AFI tomorrow night. More information on National Archives. By the way, The Life of Brian, eight years after its release, it was released in 79, so into the mid to late 80s, we finally got to see Life of Brian. We were mature enough to watch it possibly. Happy, happy for the public. At that point. Regular listeners to this show will know that Donegal poet Anne-Marie Nicoran for, a, for, among other books, her poetry collection, The Poison Glen, it has just been shortlisted for a major prize, uh, the, the Ledbury Helens Prize. Anne-Marie has recently begun to write poetry Asgelega and she is making her first appearance at IMRAM, the Irish Language Literature Festival, this Friday at noon in the Chester Beatty Library here in Dublin. The event is called Scrafa Emask Karigaka Free or Written Among the Hel- the Rock. Delighted to be joined by Anne-Marie Nicoran now on the line. Uh, congratulations first of all Anne-Marie. Must be delighted to get this shortlisting for the Poison Glen. I'm absolutely delighted. It was such a gorgeous surprise to get that magic email and that good news about the book. I'm really, really happy about it. Just remind us about, um, I suppose, the essence of what you were discussing in that collection. I suppose the collection looks to the mythology and also history of the disappeared or lost child in Irish society. So it's a it's a follow on from my first book, Bloodroot, that looked to mother and child separation through state run institutions. So the Poison Glen um, also digs into that material and it takes inspiration from the Poison Glen landscape in northwest mm. Donegal. Now, your writing is for the most part in English, but did you go to the Poison Glen uh, uh, poems and then translate them? Or are you now writing from the start, from the starting point, if you like, in Irish as well? Well, both really. I've started writing in Gaelic and that's been a kind of slow new process. But that process has been greatly aided by translating some of my existing work from the Poison Glen into Gaelic. So I've been coming at it at a few different angles. Yeah, because I wondered what that would give you, that that process of going back and looking at, because Irish Irish is your native language. That was Changa and Tain, and mm-hmm. it, that was the, 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 the language spoken at home. So it's a really kind of inevitable that I'd go back to that mother tongue and and kind of reconnect with the sense of place and with the music that is so available to me through the, the Gaelic language. So you're going to read now one of those translations. The opening poem of The Poison Glen is uh, uh, it's called uh, A Villager Speaks of Etna. Just remind us who Etna is before we hear then the, the uh, version of Asquilaga that you're going to read for us this evening. 
Well, a popular myth in Northwest Donegal is a myth, of course, of Balor of the Evil Eye, um, who is, was a Fomorian giant, and he locked his daughter, Ethna, into a tower on Tory Island. So when I was growing up, um, the myth kind of revolved around Balor and, and his grandson, Lou, but I was really interested to pay attention to the story of Ethna, the daughter who was locked in the tower. All right. So the the poem in English was "A Villager Speaks of Etna." You're going to uh, leg doing a knock on on Don Asquelige. Laurian Dinadin Chlachan er Etna. Laurian Dinadin Chlachan er Etna. Kevid far er lakshe an yersa a harin sua sista dur an ilam. Er haishi shilag er wulshi kick. Er yirshi na kangal ola a krimu, agazi eg togal kraken gruag fulla fuya hanga, er strahal shi, nor sturui gojira le slacht hill, maravau gawin augusha gro, emprian ban ilanda farg na volia mara in the krawa, deit fu ban ilanda tuemai a recha linamalak. In Shosin Yir Yala, the Ahanrud Aliano Hin, Pawsu Ninan Brishu Cree, Lion Brock Lan Askilche Silian Yiver, Falishram Jarig Shilche, Tashaskrifa Shaw Amas Karaga Freak Agasul Letra, Ni Hanvi da Heher Avienchi, Ni Dush E da Fer Kela. And Marini Kharan, Agassia Glevadon, Lorian Dinadin Kakan, Er Ethna, a poem that she originally wrote in English as a villager speaks of Ethna in her collection, The Poison Glen. How did the poem change when you translated it? Did it become something totally new or is it a first cousin? How does the, how does the Irish language version feel to you, Anne Marie? I think the Irish language version allows me a deeper engagement with the lilt and cadence of language and with the music. And it was amazing to see the images kind of come uh, to a new sort of life in the Gaelic. And it actually made me think that I had dreamed or thought the poem in Gaelic before it was ever in English. (laughs) You know, so in a way, it's bringing it back to its original roots, where it um, partly belongs. Uh, what do you think kept you, if you like, from from writing in Irish initially, or was it just that English seemed the natural way to go? What was that debate in your head, given that you so you feel you might have dreamt it in Irish previously? Mm. I think that a lot of my reading material when I was in my 20s um, was in English, you know, and um, my education was in English. And so I took this kind of circuitous route uh, back to the Gaelic language. But, you know, I think it's inevitable as well, writing about historical trauma and loss in Ireland and the mother and baby homes and the institutions that eventually I would want to go right back uh, through a landscape associated with Gaelic. You, you've also um, recently um, published uh, the pamphlet Ghost Girl. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what's involved there. 
So Ghost Girl was a commission of the Donegal decade of centenaries uh, to look at workhouse histories. And I became really interested in Stranorler Workhouse, which um, was set up, uh, you know, in the 19th century for the local poor. But by 1924, it had transformed into, into a state run home for unmarried pregnant women and their children. So I designed this uh, pamphlet as a kind of praise book or a gift book for the mothers and children, 1,646 unmarried women of the Stranoller home who passed through. So it's a kind of a celebration book for them. Well, you might finish then with one of the poems from that, The Handy Woman Tends to a Sickly Child. Let me unfurl your fist. I see fields of sweet grass in your palm, tufts of bog cotton like pocket moons quivering. You are here now, safe as a stone under my latch. June breath and seven suns breath, breath of fern in the bonfire sky, breath of the badger's claw, breath of the plover's nest, a breath to tilt back your chin and prize cleanly a snub thumb in between the lips to open up that pit and flower down into your mouth, a silty star. There, there, the cure of the breath is given like a stream of folds passing through the creaking pines. And Marina Corrine there reading her poem The Handy Woman Tends to a Sickly Child from her pamphlet Ghost Girl. Gorgia Gusarish, Anne-Marie, August Goramagat, that's very long enough. Anne-Marie will be taking part in Shkrefa Emask Kregaka Free or Written Among the Heather Rock. This is a discussion, a panel discussion taking place on Friday the 10th of November at the Chester Beatty Library in Ireland, in Dublin rather, all part of IMRAM, the Irish Language Literature Festival, which takes place from the 10th to the 18th of November imram.ie for full details on that. Now, a new documentary called Oveil is an exploration of the rise of hip-hop and electronic artists in Ireland who are embracing oral traditions of folklore, ancient poetry and Shan Nose. An ensemble piece, it features Irish-language rappers Sean Mori Omurgasa and Oshin Mack, producer and multi-instrumentalist Feda and Limerick rapper Strange Boys, directed by Kieran McCormack, who we spoke with previously uh, around the time of her film Clouded Reveries, or Ashling Three Nielev, an exploration of the acclaimed writer Dirin Nigrefa's work, and delighted to have Kira with us in studio once again this evening. And um, the inspiration here, uh, Oveil, obviously from the mouth because we're talking about hip-hop and we are talking about uh, spoken word artists, but spoken word artists, for the most part, three Gaelica. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Um, yeah, I suppose um, Oveil was born out of um, an idea whereby, I suppose I grew up listening to hip-hop, I'm really enthusiastic mm. and kind of uh, love the art form. And... Um, I suppose it just had been, and during the 90s when I grew up with it, it was, you know, it was American and UK uh, was predominantly what you were kind of listening to hip hop from those places. And um, um, in more recent years, I just started to notice, you know, this really interesting scene that was happening. And I I was kind of working on an idea um, more around a TV series and I was approached then by... um, 
Jennifer Healy, a producer at Mind the Gap, who's also working on an idea and we kind of started mm. working together on looking at, I suppose it's an exploration of identity as well. Um, well what really artists. struck me looking at that, watching the movie was like all four artists that we speak, that, we, that we've spoken about there, Maury, Ushin Mack, Feda and Strange Boy, they are all absolutely clear on, we think, I think of hip hop as modern urban music. They are clear on how ancient a form effectively hip hop is, if you like. It's like a it's a reimagining of an ancient form. Yeah, I think it's Oshin that says it's Shana Rhoda Verum Nua. Yeah, you know, an old thing in a, in a new form. Yeah, yeah. which kind of nails it, I think, really, you know, if he and especially with someone like Oshin, it's interesting. He's drawing on like ancient texts from like Pangerbon to Kurtan Van Iha as inspiration, not only like for in the language, but in the the rhythm and the rhyme. Like yeah, he, he, he also talks about using Marcino Kynes, right? And Absolutely, that's as well, yeah. Isn't it? yeah. I mean, that's just so exciting, you know, to me as a filmmaker and as, just as a, a lover of art to see that happening. Mm. And I think it's, you know, he's talking about Mishnach or confidence, and I think it is a lot around confidence now. Yeah, uh, certain, certainly that that came across from all four of them. I want to listen to. Um, uh, the Limerick rapper Strange Boy who was in with us in the studio a couple of maybe about a month or six weeks back and I have to say I, I found him extraordinary in his openness and in his honesty and this is from early on in the film and this is Strange Boy explaining how the Irish accent is so suitable to hip hop It's only the natural way to go to be honest you know what I mean just sounds that are like just indigenous to this country and I think it's more interesting to have something that's kind of jagged and kind of, you know, hearing a rapper go on a beat that's, you know, not your usual kind of hip-hop, hip-hop beat, so, like, literally the Irish accent obviously goes perfect on it because we've been doing this music for a long time, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, it just works out perfectly, really. And that's Limerick rapper Strange Boy as part of the film Oveil, uh, whose director Kieran Cormac is with me in studio this evening. Um, he, he touches there on this thing of the Irish accent, but both Oisin and Oisin uh, Mac and Maury at different points as well in the film, Kira, talk about how the Irish language sits so nicely or sits so well in hip hop. And in fact, that the number of syllables in Irish words is generally more than the number of syllables in English words. And it's quite a it's quite a technical feat to work with. Yeah, it does get quite technical. And I think the way that they explain it is so, so interesting. Mm. And, you know, when they break it down as to, I mean, how many lines, how many bars or how many syllables you have even to get your message across, like, you know, when you're creating a piece and kind of how the flows work and how you kind of, as they say, get into the pockets um, to create um, a piece of music mm. Is is extraordinary. The, the film is interesting too in that you 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 speak to all four artists. We get a little bit of their background, their their backstory, if you like. But we also see each of them in either live or studio performance, which is a very exciting part of it. And to give a sense of that, how Maury fits in the the Gaelic across hip hop. Let's listen to him performing live. 
So that's just a Kjolan Ravelo, just as we're as we're fading away there, the, the phrase that we that we hear from Maury. This is part of Kieran the Cormac's film Oville. You know, the the music of of the dream, I suppose, in some ways he's talking about there. But what struck me again, listening to particularly or uh, Maury and Oshin Mack and their use of of Gaelic, was how it was both ancient and totally modern at the same time. Yeah, and I think you know, I suppose there's a mantra um, in hip hop uh, about you know keeping it real. Mm. Keep it real is you know you hear that so often, and it's about authenticity and being real and being true to yourself. And for those two, that is creating hip hop. Oscar is how they can express themselves in the truest form, you know. Um, and I just think that's amazing, you know, to see. Yeah, and we, when we were talking about uh, about um, Strange Boy earlier on, a very important part of his music making is Enda Gallery, his producer, who brings in the sound of hard shoes from Irish dancing, who brings in all sorts of Irish traditional music rhythms. And that mixture of traditional music and hip hop is quite interesting. Yeah, that was really like special day for us, you know, even just to be in the room with them and seeing that unfold, like, you know, and as a filmmaker, mm. I just love exploring the artist process. And um, that day, you know, just watching that piece as Jordan uh, Strange Boy was creating and writing on his phone um, and then seeing it kind of develop into a recorded piece, bringing in the musicians, mm. the dancer to get the clicks for um, the beats. It was just incredible. Like Feda then, who is a Maynooth based artist, uh, she brings a whole other set of traditions into what she's doing as well. Yeah, so she's kind of drawing on her her roots and from uh, West African roots and also, you know, the Wasulu tradition with and mixing that and looking at that through um, Shanos, which is mm. just so And she saw huge uh, crossovers between that West African tradition and, and Shanos singing. Absolutely, you know, and um, just in in the rhythm, in the sound and, and um, she's kind of, I suppose she's taken it to another level and made it her own, you know, um, and um, which we see kind of unfolding in the in the film as yeah. well. Yeah, well, it's lovely to see those ideas unfolding, but particularly to see and hear all the performances as well. It adds so much to it. Thanks so much for coming in to tell us about the film this evening. That's Kieran the Cormac and Oville will have a special screening this Friday evening at the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin, where Kira, Strange Boy and Oshin Mack will be in attendance for a Q&A following the screening. And you can find out full details details on eclipsepictures.ie
When In the Black Fantastic exhibited last year at the Hayward Gallery in London, it was lauded as a visionary cultural event showcasing contemporary and historical black artists with speculative visions of the future drawn from mysticism, mythology and history. Echo Eshin, who was the curator of that exhibition, will be in Ireland later this week to deliver a lecture on In the Black Fantastic at Drogheda's Highlands Gallery. That lecture taking place on Wednesday. Delighted to have Echo join us on the line this evening. Let us um, get get the definitions out of the way if we can. First of all, Echo, the Black Fantastic, you might explain what that term means to you. It's a wonderfully evocative title, I must say, for the exhibition. Well, I mean, the Black Fantastic refers to, it's a term I came up with, and it refers to the work of artists who draw on science fiction, myth, speculative fiction, science fiction, dreaming, possibility, as a way to actually interrogate the racialized everyday, to interrogate the ordinary world we already live in with its complex uh, relationships to ideas of race and ideas of identity. These artists take some of our everyday world and think beyond it and conjure new possibilities. And one way to think about that in broad terms is that we're all living in a fantastical era right now. Mm. If you think about the popularity of science fiction or Game of Thrones or even Harry Potter, all of these things where we speak a language or Marvel movies, we speak a language, a popular language through the fantastic. The black fantastic is a version of that that looks and thinks about race and identity and possibility in the most spectacular and imaginative terms. I think if we give it, if we give it a very specific example of um, one of the aspects that you, that you speak about at different points yeah. uh, along the way, tell me a little bit uh, about Ellen Gallagher and the idea of this myth of, is it Drixica? Am I saying that correct? Drexia. Drexia, I yeah. beg your pardon. So th- this <sighs> is important. This is re- a re- kind of captures it very well for me yeah 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 well so so ellen gallagher is a she's a she's an american artist who's uh whose work really evokes the un, evokes an underwater realm she works in a whole range of different media but uh she does a lot of painting and her paintings and her paintings in the exhibition in the, in the black fantastic they kind of evoke the ocean floor. There's uh, images and fragments of coral and just the kind of detritus and matter that you might see on the seafloor. But then embedded in the paintings are these beguiling heads of of African figures that merge in and out of of the water. And Ellen Gallagher here is referencing really what's a contemporary myth, the idea of Drexia. Drexia is, a, is, a, is an idea that, that was uh, coined in the 1990s by a Detroit techno group, in fact, called Drexia, who thought back to the 18th century and thought back to the times of the slave trade when African people were um, kidnapped and sold and transported across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas, and where thousands of black people were, in fact, pushed off boats, pushed off ships into the sea and and left to drown. 
Drexia, the Detroit Techno Group, refashioned that historical reality and came up and they, they asked the question, what happened if some of those people who were thrown off those ships survived underwater, learned to breathe underwater, formed a new civilization under the water, a civilization free from colonialism, free from empire, a civilization based under the water of free black people. They called this fantasy civilization Drexia, it's an imagined idea of a realm of undersea freedom. But the basis of that myth, the basis of that idea, remains in real history. It remains yeah. within the, uh, the appalling history of the slave trade. But it's, about, it's a way of turning over that history from a history of violence and exploitation and degradation into a story of possibility and of speculation. So in, in some ways, what, what has been done in there, and it's there across other parts of the exhibition as mm-hmm. well, and other of the artists yeah. that, that you deal with, it is taking, I, I suppose, essentially the the Western version of that story, which is the slaves were yeah. thrown off the boats for whatever reasons might have been yeah. used at the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. maybe in the 21st century, we can look at that slightly different, but it's still Westernised looking at yeah. that narrative. This is the whole idea of those who actually experienced and the civilizations and the peoples that experienced the historical event take ownership of the story and imagine it into something incredibly positive, actually. That's that's such a great way of exactly describing that. You know, artworks are the works of, you know, artists who practice and imagining, who want you to see the world from their point of view. So in this case, yes, the myth of Drexia or the work of Ellen Gallagher, the artist, all of this is about a shift of perspective. All of this says, well, what happens if we think about these historical events, as you say, from the point of view of black people? involved rather than the white people involved not to say one is yeah necessarily better than the other but just to say that what happens then is we enter a different realm we enter a realm of resistance of liberation of dreaming aloud of possibility and as you say we invert these extraordinarily bleak histories and find within them a route towards self-fashioned possibility, towards a new way of seeing and being mm. reckoning with the world. It, it strikes me, I mean, I love the Drexia myth um, uh, and the, the way it, it really takes hold of that story, takes mm. it by the neck and says, get out of the way, this is our story. There's something yeah. really I- incredibly strong in that act. And, and funnily enough, um, Afronauts, are another aspect that that you like to talk about, and this is the, this idea of space travel. I I interviewed Janelle Monet oh, oh yeah. a few years back now it is at this stage, and I remember she had this kind of she was starting to develop almost this you know astronaut a creature from another planet, uh, another realm. She was beginning to develop that persona. How does somebody yeah. like that from popular culture, how do what they're doing, how does that fit into what, you, what you're talking about? I mean, about? yeah, I mean, Janelle Monáe is a really good example of exactly of, of this territory. I, I suppose my point overall is that I curated this exhibition uh, last year at the Hayward, which I'm you know, talking about 
later this week. But one of the things that inspired me was that all around, across popular culture, in visual art, but also in music, also in film, also in literature, you see different black creatives thinking about the speculative possibilities. Janelle Monet is exactly mm. in that territory. She conjured herself as an Afronaut. But uh, we can even think about Beyonce with Lemonade. If you look at the film of Lemonade by Beyonce, it's full of these uh, references to African myth, to African collective memory. If you look at the movie Black Panther, which is a huge, yeah. you know, billion-dollar success. This mm. is the same territory of, yeah. yeah, black speculation. And, you know, a lot of what you're talking about here is mythology. It is fantastical. It is folkloric. Mm. It is it has fables within it as well. We're not averse to a bit of that in this country <laughs> either. And I'm not sure how, just how aware you were of the colonial aspects to the place you will be on Wednesday mm. evening delivering and uh, this lecture and discussing the Black Fantastic you'll be in Drogheda in the Highlands Gallery resonances here for an Irish audience is so close to the River Boyne totally intertwined with Britain's complex history yeah. of colonialism in Ireland that surely will be part of your talk Yes well exactly, exactly that I mean my I suppose my point is I don't presume to know everything, but what I do understand is that exactly these connections and crossovers between the 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 colonizer and the colonized, the exploited and the exploiter, the search, the desire for liberation, for an assertion of freedom, for an insistence on being, from a desire to be recognized as whole and human and free. These things, we might say, are universal and they're also specific, yes, to the experience I'm talking about, but yes, exactly also mm. to the experience that you're discussing. And the other side that struck me where there are parallels is, you mean, you talk, uh, I, I think it's in the introduction to the book uh, that you mm -hmm. published in and around the, the exhibition about there's no dichotomy between the real and the unreal, between yeah. the scientific and the supernatural. And I think that's something that is often there within Celtic mythology and within yes. Celtic lore as well. Exactly, exactly. I'm so glad you said that. The, look, the, the point is so often we're told that... Somehow, if we, you know, if we choose to invest our time in thinking about and engaging with myth and fable and folklore and so on, that somehow this is less serious, somehow this is less real, somehow this is less rational. But actually, just think about how culturally important those elements of folklore and myth and fable are to who we are as peoples, how much they, how much energy and power and joy and vision they give to us about how we can walk through the world. So far from the idea somehow that these are lesser elements, that these are unserious ways to see the world, I would say they're fairly mm. fundamental when it comes yeah. to how we can think about who we are. Echo, it's fascinating to speak with you and those who attend the talk on Wednesday, I'm sure, will hear much more of your thoughts and lucky people there will be. Thanks for being with us this evening. 
Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That's Echo Eshon and Echo will speak at the Highlands Gallery in Drogheda Wednesday, November the 8th. The event runs from 7pm through until 9pm, includes a reception uh, with refreshments at 7pm, although you could listen to me too at 7pm. Echo's lecture will be at 7.45, will be followed by a Q&A session moderated by artist Joy Gerard and full information on highlands.ie. In the Black Fantastic is the name of the book, by the way, as well. It's published by MIT Press. We had a